You're listening to Across the Table, a healthcare private equity podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Across the Table brings you inside the conversation with the specialists and professionals of the healthcare private equity industry. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Cockrell from McGuire Woods, and we're bringing you another installment of our Across the Table series, where we have conversations with deal makers in healthcare private equity, talking about sectors, uh, trends, and all the things that drive transactions in healthcare. I'm super thrilled to be joined by my good friend, Paul Barrett from Argosy Healthcare Partners, which is a subsidiary fund within Argosy Capital. Paul, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what you're building at Argosy. Absolutely, thanks, Jeff. Grateful to uh, be here with you today. So appreciate the invite and, and excited to discuss. Yep, so Paul Barrett, originally from the Philly area, and uh, spent the last 14 years in uh, greater New York City area, all in healthcare-related ventures. For the last eight years, was a partner at a lower middle market dedicated healthcare firm. More recently, and in my you know current firm and partnership with Argosy Capital, returned to the hometown with my family and launched a new vertical and a new standalone firm and team within the Argosy Capital family of funds. They're located in Wayne, Pennsylvania which is suburban Philly, and have five distinct uh, lower middle market-focused strategies. First, the General's P firm, focused on manufacturing services and business services, real estate, credit, secondary, and, and most recently, obviously, healthcare that we launched January 1 of this year. And Argosy was founded over 30 years ago, 1990, and has stuck to their kind of core values and principles uh, throughout the way. Uh, which are about partnership and, you know, focusing on small and medium-sized companies. So we're thrilled to be, uh, I guess, seven months in. And lastly, the core part of our strategy is majority control transactions in supporting uh, lower middle market founder-owned healthcare services companies. Paul, as you look at the market, looking at targets that you find interesting, what segment of the market from a size perspective do you focus on? So we focus on the small stuff, and that's a that's a key part of our kind of thesis and strategy, and trying to differentiate ourselves in in a super competitive market. You know, one obviously being sector focused, two majority control deals exclusively, and then three founder owned. And we'll you know we'll go anywhere in the U.S. But then we try to go to the most attractive healthcare services end markets, but find you know direct or a little less competitive opportunities by just going subscale. The kind of tandem component of that strategy is that we have a bias towards buy and build. So fragmented areas like post-acute care services, home health hospice, staffing, a lot of the provider areas obviously lend themselves to that as well. You know, revenue cycle-related services. We actually have a, a product and distribution business under LOI right now, which is going to be a buy and build. So great healthcare services market founder own and led and we really like to back founders and support them in executing their vision and you know bring capital and outsource MA expertise and support services to the table and then let it rip together. So you focus on companies that have EBITDA in the one to three million dollar range. Why do you think that is the attractive part of the market for what you're trying to do? I mean a lot of it is the competitive aspect of thing. Obviously, when you get to 10 million in EBITDA and above, each each kind of range has its own category and step up in competition. And 
multiple expectations and, and also formality of the process. And as everything keeps getting more and more competitive every year, even the thresholds are seeming to be lower. You know, it used to be 10 million of EBITDA was when you hit a, a kind of game-changing point of competition. Then it was five, and there's even an argument for three now because of all the uh, activity in the lower middle market and the middle market funds dipping down and probably deploying a similar strategy. And, and it really is, you know, once you plan a flag, then your ability to source out on acquisitions and bring talented executives that are looking for, you know, medium and bigger size company opportunities, it's planning that flag is a game changer in an end market when you have a five to seven year window like we do in terms of accelerating your pace once you're in. So it's really super important for us to find the right business and quality of the founder that we're teaming up with. But, and even we say one to three and our range is really one to two. You know, that's where we find ourselves, you know, finding uh, direct opportunities and, and situations where we can take our time and we can do a lot of upfront due diligence. We can build a personal relationship with the founder. And then they're either looking for capital to execute add-on acquisitions or they want to clean up their cap table, or they're just ready to grow a little more quickly and, and doing it as one individual is tougher. I think that's a great strategy, and I, I especially in sectors where kind of finding platforms is a, a real challenge, which obviously contributes to the pricing difficulty that you talk about, but it also kind of uh, avoids a, a problem that we encounter with some other funds of if they need it to be six, seven, million dollars of EBITDA, they will at times be cobbling together things that were smaller to begin with. And right. I think your strategy of just focusing on uh, getting, like you said, planting that flag is a great strategy. When you're kind of starting at that part of the market, what are some of the challenges that you encounter with those platforms? Yeah, I appreciate that. Because it's all, you know, you have choices. It's an imperfect world. So you have to just kind of pick your lane and and it'll have the kind of aspects that you're comfortable with. I mean, kind of personally, from just an approach perspective, I like having, and our team, you know, likes having more time and a more direct approach and the chance to build personal relationships and that type of thing. But with that comes a lot less infrastructure, a lot less professionalism, and certainly being in the weeds in order to support these businesses, particularly for that first year or two. There are times where we're able to find a little more down the runway business or a sophisticated founder, like we're this business that we have under LOI in the distribution space. He's, you know, a super sophisticated guy. But at this lower end of the market, that's a little bit more the exception than the norm. So we elect to have, you know, more time and a more direct approach and be in the weeds. But the trade off is that it certainly has its challenges in terms of getting the businesses up and running, what they're able to do on their own what we have to be intimately involved in out of the gate and for the foreseeable future. And obviously with that comes some risk, but, you know, in weighing all the factors, we just like that area. 3 million of EBITDA now is, is things are even more competitive there or five. I mean, we just like our chances to get to that platform stage in a reasonably accelerated way by just putting together a couple of the small businesses that are being completely overlooked. Once you've kind of planted your flag and, and build add-ons, when do you usually think about selling to the next buyer? We hope, if we're fortunate, the 10 million mark of EBITDA is a bit of a magic number in the sense that once we achieve that, 
range or are even getting close to that, I think, again, if we're able to pull that off, if we're starting in the one to three zone and we're, and we're approaching 10 or at 10, we're in a very positive position and situation. So that's the time where, you know, we'll probably evaluate it on a quarter or half year basis. You know, we do have the family office capital and kind of history with all the Argosy related vehicles. So there isn't pressure at this evolution of our firm because we're pre-fund. We're, we're leveraging the family office balance sheet to do deals. So we're not on a fixed timeline. So if we have a fantastic team and, you know, everyone thinks that we could get to 15 or 18 or even 20, you know, versus selling at 10. So once we get into the high single digit and approaching 10, then it's kind of case by case basis, I guess, and, and being reevaluated. Part of the market that you focus, I, I would uh, assume that for every seven to $10 million EBITDA company, there might be 30 that are in the one to $3 million EBITDA range. How do you think about deal sourcing in those dynamics? And on the, cause on the big end, you've got, A, things are much more scarce, but you've got bankers and other uh, folks that are getting involved in the deal sourcing for the buyers. How do you think about the, the smaller end of the market from a deal sourcing perspective? Yeah, there are tons of businesses uh, in that size range. So, I mean, for us, we just keep getting, you know, somewhat narrower and narrower in terms of what we're focusing on. So both the end markets and kind of the businesses themselves. But I think at the end of the day, and this has been more crystallized in this first eight months, because there are a ton of healthcare services, 1 million of EBITDA businesses out there, but there's not a ton. There's, you know, a much smaller number that fits the bill of a platform, at least from, you know, from our perspective. And there, this is not what probably most firms would view as a platform with a, you know, five to seven person executive team, all systems consolidated and pedigreed and the track record and done add-ons. Like for us, our expectations are different, but still more so than a retiring founder with a, you know, home health services agency with a million of EBITDA like that. We can't start there. And really the preference is for a younger founder that's really looking for a partner. So those are a little bit more few and far between. As you're looking at the market in sourcing those deals, how much do you lean into the independent sponsor world? I, they serve a significant function in sourcing some of those harder to find smaller deals. Is that, is that an area where you spend a lot of time? We have, and particularly through your network, which we're appreciative of, and it's certainly a growing end of the market. I guess right now where we are in our evolution, we are functioning, you know, we have the committed family office capital, but we're pre-fund. So, and the way that we're structuring our deals is not necessarily, is more of a traditional fund structure versus an indie sponsor structure. But at the same time, we're functioning in that role a bit. So we're kind of leaning on the legacy BD and origination tools and strategies that uh, we use in my former firm, which is a ton of broker outreach. And for us, the sweet spot is a little bit more of the independent brokers and the groups that have, you know, a couple deals a year or, you know, certainly outside of the, the kind of middle market M&A world. So, you know, for us, it's specificity of then markets and sectors, you know, the five or eight that we're focused on, being constant communication with brokers and intermediaries. We also try to go direct. We leverage technology tools, you know, whether it's source scrub and even our CRM system to attempt to go to go direct to some founders to try to drum up opportunities in areas like healthcare staffing where we have a really specific thesis. And then now things are opening up a little bit, you know, I look forward to heading to 
McGuire Woods related conferences and others to kind of get, and we do a lot of healthcare industry conference stuff to try to get embedded and build direct relationships, always with the goal, if we can, which is a longer term sales cycle, but what we did with Navaderm, which was, you know, build a relationship with an executive recruiter and really pitch something unique. It took, a, you know, over a year, but those were total direct introductions to founders that, you know, we were able to do outside of intermediaries. You mentioned that looking at kind of the end market buyers of uh, platforms, you've landed on four or five kind of subsectors in healthcare that are of particular interest to you. Can you pick one or two of those and kind of talk through what your thesis is or how those end markets have uh, kind of narrowed the field of possible sectors to invest in to these uh, handful? Yeah, absolutely. Healthcare staffing is a really interesting world right now. So we, uh, I'll give a quick past history. Yeah, my former group, we teamed up with two founders in uh, Edmond, Oklahoma, a business called AHS Staffing. They're focused on two niche areas of, of the temporary healthcare staffing world. Dialysis, travel, nursing, and pharmacy. Mark was a serial entrepreneur. He had previously built another healthcare staffing business that he sold to CHG Healthcare, which is the second largest healthcare staffing business in the country. So he had great background. They're two really, really good people, him and his co-founder. So that was a little bit of the what we're looking for. You know, we think the, you know, this was 2016. We thought the tailwinds in the sector were great, super fragmented. And our thesis was, all right, you know, there's tons of founder-owned businesses out there in our strike zone, one, two of EBITDA. Focus on one area of the market. Let's all come together, build a consolidated corporate back office, inject technology. And then, you know, we'll have a diversified platform like AMN Healthcare, which was the, you know, behemoth in the sector remains, the behemoth publicly traded, that type of thing. So we did five deals in 12 months, injected a lot of technology. One of the add-ons was a, a SaaS business, and we put a bunch of capital into that. And fast forward, the business has done fantastic. The COVID tailwinds, you know, helped more recently in the travel nursing segment. But we're looking to replicate that strategy and thesis. You know, it might look a little bit different, but we're looking to team up with founder-owned temporary healthcare staffing business with one to two of EBITDA as a platform to start with a great owner-operator that wants to go on the ride and the journey of, you know, executing a buy and build and, and getting bigger and that type of thing. So, and then lastly, the healthcare staffing market, because of COVID, is dynamic and also a little bit difficult to peg right now. The travel nursing businesses doubled all last year. So there are dozens and dozens of those in the market, obviously, trying to cash in a bit is tough. It would be tough to be higher than where they are now. And then there's the locum tenens, the temporary doctor-related businesses, which a lot of them struggled because elective procedures were down in, in ERs and hospitals and health systems. So a little bit of winners and losers and tough to predict the next like 12, 24 months, particularly if COVID stays choppy. So we'll, we'll see. On the uh, provider services side, on the physician side, what sectors do you find interesting or that you have a thesis around? We've been putting the provider services a little bit on the back burner, <laughs> candidly, and been focusing on a little bit of post-acute care services with you know home health and hospice in terms of direct kind of provider-based companies. Obviously, we work together in the dermatology services space, which I still think has a lot of opportunity. And, you know, the areas that we are looking at a bit, but it, candidly, it's a little secondary, are derm, dental, and vet, which are probably the three hottest areas. So no, nothing terribly special about the, the, the thesis there. 
but areas where if you could uh, buy something small, build it up a little bit, there'd be a lot of buyers for those still make sense as well. On the post-acute side, uh, taking uh, home health and hospice, we have seen a significant uptick in deal activity in those sectors. So what's your thought process around your thesis for those particular sectors? Yeah, that end market, as you mentioned, it's the outlook's really good in terms of you know, aging baby boomers and all the healthcare services trends, personal patient preference to be able to be in the home and, and also the cost of care and all that type of thing, which has been the long-term trend for a while. And it really lends itself well to our model of starting small and then executing a buy and build. At the former firm, there was a business called Care Advantage, which was a mid-Atlantic provider of private duty and personal care services, teamed up with a founder-owned business, about $2 million in change of EBITDA, executed, I think, 12 or 13 add-ons in a three-year period. It's a fantastic team, business, geographic density, and, you know, it was, it was just a great outcome. And I think that strategy is just very replicatable, you know, whether it's the skilled Medicare services or the private duty stuff. Starting in a pick a geography, we're outside Philadelphia and Pennsylvania, so East Coast ideally, but, you know, it could be anywhere. You know, a million of EBITDA, younger founder and operator that has the capability of an interest in becoming the platform, roll 30, 40% of equity, and then execute the buy and build. So we're excited about that one. Paul, you also mentioned that you have a thesis surrounding pharma services, another area where we're seeing a ton of interest, and it has some benefits of being less susceptible to direct government reimbursement and all the risks that come with that. But what, what's your thesis around pharma services? Yeah, the greater Philly area in Pennsylvania is, is a great life sciences and biotech services market. So we're trying to lean into the local relationships as well. But we have two theses in the end market. One is on more of the consulting pharma services related side. So the trends in this end market are increased outsourcing by small, medium, big pharma and biotech businesses. And that's everything on the commercialization side. It's everything on the medical affairs, compliance, regulatory, all that whole host of outsourced services. There are a ton of five to 15 to 18 million revenue businesses, oftentimes focused on their local geography of pharma businesses, whether it's San Diego or Boston or Philly, that have nice-based businesses. So we'd love to consolidate that market similar to healthcare staffing in a way where there's founders focused on one area. So bring them together, consolidate the back office, cross-sell services, diversify the customer base, diversify geography. So that's on the pharma services side. And then on the life sciences tools side, so, you know, the reagents and components that go into the drug development process, love that side of the world. It's, you know, everything related to cell and gene therapy is in hyper growth mode. There's tons of big strategics that are highly acquisitive. So whether it's cells, tissues, proteins that are being designed into the drug development process or sold into academia, those are two super interesting areas for us. Maybe switching to kind of macroeconomics, given your part of the market that you're you're looking, how impacted uh, do you think your part of the market would be from a either a little bit of a uh, downtick in macroeconomic activity or a little bit of uptick in interest rates. When you think about the, the high-end market on size, those little 
adjustments can have a significant impact on multiples at that size and significantly change some of the, the business strategies. In your part of the market, is it, does it work the same way? Or are they a little less impacted from a pricing perspective on some of those macro trends? Yeah, we hope to be a little bit more insulated just by the fact of, you know, one, obviously being in healthcare, two, just the size of the deals that we're doing. They're always going to be lightly levered, one, because we take a conservative approach, but two, they just don't have the cash flow, sufficient cash flow to support a lot of debt. So, and I think it's also evidenced by for the last many, many years, and it's still true today, we essentially are acquiring all these businesses for between five and seven times sometimes a little bit more, but that hasn't changed over a pretty long period of time. And for us, again, since this is the small stuff in a hotter market, maybe it's seven and a half times versus six and a half times, but that's on a million of EBITDA. So this is like overall, it's a pretty narrow band of things versus the big guys that are acquiring 20, 30, 40 million EBITDA businesses and they're the leverage that's involved in that and the pricing. And, you know, it's just much larger enterprises versus what we're doing. There's a lot of reasons why I think your part of the market is a great one to be building in for kind of the insulation from competition, insulation from economics, a ready supply of upmarket buyers. Why do you think there are fewer folks kind of at your end of the market? Uh, I think it's a great strategy, but you're a little bit more unique. Why, why do you think that is? The evolution of funds typically takes you more up market because if you're able to invest in larger, more concentrated deals, one, you can leverage your team, you know, more effectively in that way. And two, you can raise more capital. So I think we're going to be a little bit, as we hopefully evolve, if we're fortunate enough, higher volume in our same strategy. And if you're putting out 100 million equity versus our 10 million, you can obviously build a bigger platform and kind of institution. And I know that you know people often talk about people continuing to move up market and it makes sense. You know, they want to do bigger deals so they can have bigger platforms and that type of thing. So I think people naturally kind of evolve in that way. But we found the area that we like. So we you know plan to stick to that. Paul, I think your strategy is a tremendous one and one that will be successful for a long time given those dynamics. Whether we're talking about an investment banker or a business owner, how can people find you? Yeah, I really appreciate that, Jeff. And we welcome any and all intros. You know, they're all valuable to us. Intermediaries, bankers, healthcare executives, board members, people just looking to connect. I just please email me, you know, pbarrett, two R's, two T's at argosyhp.com. I'd love to connect and uh, team up on a sector or, you know, find ways to be mutually supportive. Thanks a lot, Paul. I think we'll call that a wrap and we'll see everybody on our next installment. We appreciate you joining us on this episode of Across the Table. To learn more about today's discussion or to contact us, please visit our website at mcguirewoods.com. We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state 
and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.